0: Super
1: Talk Mississippi Media Production. Whether you're looking to start a career with no student loans or change careers to land one of the happiest jobs in the world, yep, that's construction, Build Mississippi can help. Visit buildmississippi.com to learn why a career in the trades deserves another look. Buildmississippi.com. Your future is
0: waiting. What is up on a Wednesday I am Brian Scott Rippy. My co-conspirator, as always, is Colin Brister. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Wednesday, August 7th edition of the Rebel Report podcast. Probably a little bit different show today. Um, we have Lee Steinberg um, on. <laughs> you may better know him as Jerry Maguire, as that movie was based loosely off of his life. Um, he was a sports super agent, really became... Um, Became really one of the first, if not the first, so- super agent when there really wasn't a huge market for sports agent like that at the time. wasn't necessarily seen as like a, a lucrative career path. Even to the point, and you'll hear more of it in the interview, where like back in the day when he first started, teams often refused to speak to agents and wanted to deal with players themselves. Fascinating guy became kind of a titan in the industry once represented. 90-plus clients, and you're talking Troy Aikman, Ryan Leaf, Warren Moon. Um, I mean, he, he was it for a long time. Um, ran into some financial troubles. As he talked about, he struggled with alcoholism and some other things. Really kind of – I mean, I think he would agree with this. Crashed and burned, um, I would say, in the mid-2000s, somewhere, anywhere between 2004 and 2010. And has since made a pretty solid comeback. Um He represents around eight, nine clients now, the most notable of which being uh, Patrick Mahomes, um, Paxton Lynch, and some other guys. Now, a really interesting guy, uh, one of the more powerful guys in the sports agency landscape. As I said, I mean, hell, they made a movie after him. Uh, Obviously, Jerry Maguire, based loosely off of his life, a really fascinating guy, was really generous with his time, talked with me for half an hour. Um, I don't know if I've explained the backstory on the show, uh, but a buddy of mine that I lived in college with for three years, uh, went out and did, he's in law school, but did an internship for Lee out summer in Newport beach, California. So when I was on vacation out there, I went in and talked to Lee, uh You know, set up a time to get him on the podcast. He's a nice guy. He has a really interesting story. It's really a pretty, pretty good comeback story in a lot of ways. Um, So we've got that today. Um, We'll get into some Ole Miss stuff. I know it hasn't been too long since we talked because we dropped a podcast since Monday. We dropped a podcast on Monday night. Excuse me. Um, We don't get to go back to see Ole Miss practice again until Wednesday morning. And truth be told, when I started this show, I entangled myself in a web of lies because we're recording this on a Tuesday night. Uh, so it is not Wednesday yet where we are, but what's up? Not much.
1: Yeah, we're in a different time
0: zone. Uh, uh wait, where are you? No,
1: I'm just. I was just saying
0: that. There oh oh, were- uh, this
1: is on Wednesday. Yeah
0: yeah. So uh, yeah, so it's Wednesday in your world, not ours. Um, but really good. It's a fascinating interview. I. I it's a little bit different. Hopefully, maybe. I mean, fall camp's not really to the point where. It's gotten mundane yet because it's really only a week, in mean, less than a week old. But I think you'll find some of the stuff he says fascinating. We talked a lot about how the sports agency has changed, um, negotiating tactics. I even got him to tell a story about how he squirted the Bears general manager with a water gun while um, negotiating Jim Harbaugh's contract. He's an interesting guy. Right.
1: Wait, was there like vitriol involved? In no, this? no, 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 it was
0: a joke. It was a joke. Oh, okay. Like it was, it was the guy had a good sense of humor. I'm pretty sure they got a deal done very shortly after that. Um Okay. All right. So, yeah, he's got some interesting stories, man. He's seen some stuff. He's he's he knows a lot of very powerful people, uh, obviously. Um really interesting guy. I don't know I don't remember if I told this story on the podcast or not, but like I walked into his office and uh one of the first couple photos I saw was a photo of him and Obama, followed by a photo of him and Kevin Costner, and then another one of, I believe, him and Cuba Gooding Jr., who was in that movie, and he was played by Tom Cruise in the movie. So the guy has some Hollywood clout.
1: <laughs> yeah, we, uh, that's, that's when we started to play, like, who's the most famous person you have in your phone
0: book? Uh, yeah, that, that, that could be it, because he, uh, he, <laughs> that guy uh, that guy knows some people. I mean, he considers Jerry Jones a very close personal friend. Um, really interesting guy to be honest uh, he's what I think he's 70 71 years old now um, kind of at the tail end of what has been a pretty remarkable career with a lot of ups and downs anyway we'll get into that we'll get into some Ole Miss football um, kind of see whatever else comes up um, well I don't really know where we should start today I actually have an interesting we to, not to steer away from an Ole Miss note but Bill Bender of the Sporting News um, wrote a story about the dark Courses um, in the college football playoff, or five teams that could crash the college football playoff party. Okay. The headline, um, and the qualifier here is he had to pick one from each conference. So it's not like literally probably the five he thinks, but he's some interesting ones from each conference. Um, I guess we can start there because uh, I found this story interesting. We okay. talked about it a little bit on radio. Uh, so the first team he picked, for, well, he started with the SEC. Oh, oh, let, let me guess. Like, like, tell me the conference. Let me guess. SEC.
1: SEC. Um,
0: LSU? No, Auburn. Okay, um,
1: that was my second guess.
0: He says, because it's Auburn and you never really know what's going to happen under Gus Malzahn, Joey Gatewood or Bo Nix could solidify the quarterback position. When the Tigers have handled that, they can beat anybody. I actually very much agree with that. That defense is going to be nasty. Uh, yep. And presumably they'll run the football better a little bit than last year. They had a pretty... Sh- pretty shitty offensive line if we're being completely honest and if you can't run the ball in Gus Malzahn's system it's not a very good system um then he asked himself do I really believe that said Auburn plays at Texas A&M Florida and LSU before November the rest of the games are at Jordan-Hare Stadium that includes mega matchups against Georgia and Alabama if they can get to the final month at seven and one then they have a chance I actually I I believe that I'm just not sure they're going to get to the final month at seven and one because you know I mean, like he just said, they have, they have to go to Texas A and M, Florida, and LSU, and then they open the they open with November. And if the quarterback situation is not solidified, which doesn't lend itself well with opening the season with Oregon, I'm not sure I buy it. But at the same time, if they can somehow beat Oregon and then Nix or Gatewood takes off, I don't actually hate this. No, I don't either. Um,
1: it's uh, look that, that Auburn team can go one way or the other, and it it, it did not surprise me.
0: Yeah, I um. I yeah I I don't hate that at all. I mean I think LSU, LSU would have been an interesting pick, um. But I, I mean LSU's a preseason top ten team, um. So I'm not sure if that counts as necessarily a sleeper. Like I think there's a lot of people. Obviously they're they're second tier behind Alabama, but you know they have a chance. LSU's got a good a shot as any in the playoff. They just have to beat Alabama. But obviously huge if that's that's yeah
1: especially in Tuscaloosa.
0: Um yeah so you know. I I, I don't hate that. I I, I think that's a fair pick. I don't think you could really call Georgia a sleeper at this point. ACC, he goes with Syracuse.
1: Okay. I like Dino Babers.
0: Won Um, 10 games last year, got a new quarterback, played enough last season. Uh, Tony DeVito says played enough last season to uh, to avoid being overwhelmed. Um, Syracuse is one of six Power 5 teams that averaged more than 40 points a game last year along with Oklahoma, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State and West Virginia. That kind of speaks for itself.
1: Yeah, I mean. Look, Dino Babers is one of the best college football coaches there is. Uh, they won a lot of football games last year. They're the second best team in the ACC. Um, no, that that wouldn't shock me at all. Um, I mean, it would shock me if they made the playoffs, yes. Um, but if they turn out another, you know, nine and three or ten and two, I'm not stunned.
0: Yeah, and his biggest thing here is that they split the last two meetings with Clemson, and I believe nah. the Tigers go to the Carrier Dome on September 14th. Well, well I know they. they what? What's it, uh, Kelly Bryant got hurt? Yeah, yeah. I Kelly mean, you still—they won the game.
1: Yeah, well, you know, two years in a row, uh, Lawrence got hurt against uh, uh, Syracuse last year, and they had to play their third string because Kelly Brown had left.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't hate that one either. I don't really know what else you could have picked out of the uh, yeah. out out of them. I mean, Virginia Tech probably not. Florida State's not going to be very good. Miami's probably not going to be very good. I mean, what else are you? What else are you picking from?
1: No, I mean. Wait, in the Big 12, did this guy say
0: Texas? No, he like, said Iowa State. Iowa State.
1: Okay, I was just going to say, you can't call Texas a dark horse, dark
0: can you? No, but Iowa State was picked to third, finish third in the Big 12 behind Oklahoma and Texas. Um, I think Matt Campbell's a really good coach. They won eight games each of the last two seasons, and they like the development of quarterback Brock Purdy, is what Benger sure. says. Iowa State it, is 5-4 and four against top-20 teams the last two years, including 3-1 and one against the top 10. That's a really strong mark. Um, let me uh,
1: – Big
0: Ten, uh, Nebraska? Um, Yeah, it is. And Richard has been high on this on the radio show. Um, you know, sophomore quarterback Adrian Martinez, some people think he could really kind of come on the scene this year. Obviously, Scott Frost at year two was pretty good at UCF. Uh, I don't necessarily buy this as much, but sure, if you're going to call it a sleeper from the Big Ten.
1: <laughs> and Pac-12's got to be Utah.
0: Um. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Uh, Tyler Huntley coming back, running back Zach Moss coming back. Really talented defensive line. Utah makes sense. I don't really know where else you're going because I don't think you can call Oregon a dark horse. I'm not really sure how good USC actually is. Um, I think
1: Utah is the best team in that conference.
0: Oh, I don't know, man. Oregon's the most experienced team in college football.
1: Yeah, I don't believe in crystal ball at all.
0: Um. Yeah, but you got Justin Herbert. It's hard to screw that up. Um. Yeah. I mean, you can't call. I mean, their Oregon's good. I don't know if you can call them a dark horse. Utah's a sexier dark horse pick. I don't know. I found that to be pretty interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. There's any teams off the radar that I can really think of that I think might have a shot, and really nobody. Missouri. Yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast before. Missouri (laughs) could get that. Oh, yeah, they got the postseason ban. But like, if you want a team that kind of is better than people think, I guess is what I'm kind of more getting at. Um, No one really jumps off the page.
1: No. not really I think Michigan's got they got a chance to be really good this year but I mean Michigan's got a chance to be really good every year
0: yeah they do and it's just it, I have trouble taking a lot of this seriously just because college football is the most unbalanced top heavy sports um, there is on earth like people make fun of the NBA having no parity man like look if you're a college football fan making fun of the NBA you should probably buy a mirror um. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I found this list to be fairly interesting. Uh, that's probably I would have picked in each conference. Although I would still consider LSU a dark horse. I probably would have taken them. Um, I don't really know how good Pitt's going to be. I guess that could have been a dark horse pick, but that doesn't really feel realistic. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anyone missing Pac-12 wise. Kind of going down the list. Don't think Stanford's going to be that. I don't. What I don't yeah. know. Washington.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they could be good, yeah. Easton, I really like Easton. A lot of people don't, but I think he's pretty good. I wouldn't be shocked if Washington has a really good year.
0: Yeah, and their preseason ranked 12th. I mean, that's kind of dark horse-ish territory. Yeah. Um,
1: Maybe ranked too
0: high. Yeah, Jacob Eason was a really good quarterback. Really big kid with the strong arm. Uh, they weren't working with a whole lot his first year when he was the starter right. before he got hurt and they had the whole from thing. Like I remember when Ole Miss came and stomped him pretty good in, seven, in 16 or whatever. Georgia's biggest receiver and I can't remember this kid's name was like five ten. Like this guy was not <laughs> throwing to very good targets. Yeah,
1: no. I mean, and Eason was a true freshman. I mean, yeah, it was it was not an ideal situation.
0: Yes, sir. Is he a redshirt sophomore?
1: Uh, so, he red last year. Um, he played in 17, so he'll be a red uh, junior. 16, he played 16, he played 17, he redshirted last year, so he'll be a junior.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, let me make sure I have that right. Yeah, I guess, because they don't have the four game, they didn't have the four game thing.
1: Right, yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's really about it. I'm trying to think of anyone else that I could... Uh, yeah, Redshirt Jr. Um, I always forget he's from up there.
1: Yeah, he's from Washington. They got it, Rick. He came down there under Rick.
0: Yeah, they 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 could be pretty damn good. Um, yeah, so I don't know. This kind of list season where you make different zany predictions... Um, I'm
1: trying to see. Did you, was, vote? Did, you, did you vote today?
0: I did not, and I just got crucified on the radio show for you announcing that be I don't crucified vote.
1: For not voting, come on.
0: I, 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 to be honest, it was pure laziness. I'm not a high. I don't care about elections, guy. I really, I just, I, I didn't get around to it today. Like, are um, you
1: registered in Oxford or Jackson?
0: Uh that's a great question. Probably need to figure oh, that out.
1: God.
0: Yeah, I'm a sack. Like, if you're gonna be like, hey, you're a sack of shit citizen, hand up. I am. tattooed on my chest. Wait,
1: have have you ever voted?
0: Yeah, I have before.
1: Was it in Jackson or was it in Oxford? Jackson. Okay, well then you're registered in Jackson, right? But
0: I may have changed it since. I really don't remember.
1: (laughs) I think you'd remember if you changed your voting.
0: I don't know, man. Um,
1: Where's your car tag from?
0: Lafayette County now.
1: Oh, well, maybe you are in
0: Oxford. See, so I don't know. Um, (laughs) Like... I should have voted, and these probably matter more because, like, a presidential election around here, does your vote really matter one way or another? Probably not. Um, Yeah, I really – I just didn't get around to do it today. I interviewed Jerry Maguire. Like, what did you do?
1: I voted.
0: Yeah, so to each their own. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I should have done it. Hey, Dad went on this – see, I got crucified, kind of lumped in with them because Hey, Dad went on this tangent on the radio show – About how he didn't vote because he doesn't vote in elections because he doesn't care and he doesn't think it matters. And then, of course, I said, it's okay. I didn't vote either. But, of course, people start lumping that into, you're not an American. Like, you don't care. I'm like, no, actually, I just didn't vote today. Sorry. If somebody loses by one vote, you have full permission to call me an asshole.
1: Uh, So you're going to vote in the uh, runoff?
0: Yeah, sure. I will. I'll make sure to get all my shit together in that in that sense. So yeah, it's election day. I'm glad people are patriotic. You know what? It's my podcast, my rules, right? So I can do whatever I want. Um
2: my podcast. Are we
1: gonna make T shirts and put that on our truck?
0: Not quite, not quite. Um so yeah, election day around here. Um I was kinda going through some notes to see if I kinda left off anything from everything I had from an old miss perspective. Um no, but I'd like to get into maybe a couple position battles that will be kind of hey, interesting.
1: Hey, some some big news uh, broke on the old Miss front that uh, we did not discuss. What? Jordan Fowler left the baseball
0: team. Oh, that's right. I guess that happened. That happened at the end of last week.
1: I don't know. It just happened.
0: Whatever. I mean, this was kind of still coming. Uh, yeah, not a ton really surprising with that he was a kid that had some moments as a freshman um never really solidified himself as a sophomore uh kind of lost i don't know if it was a command thing but he just never looked in control on the mound obviously he had had it elsewhere i'm not sure what his role would have been next year anyway he
1: throws 87 miles an hour and the ball moved a lot his freshman year and it did move a lot his sophomore year that's about the extent of it and when you throw 87 that thing better move
0: yeah So, um, you know, just kind of, I don't know, they got a whole, They got Ole Miss should be pretty good, as we've talked about before, on the mound next year. It's kind of these new guys are going to hit. Um, From fall camp notes, I believe Keedrin Smith was working some with the first team at defensive back yesterday instead of Jalen Jones. I'm not really sure what that means because it's three days into fall camp. Kedron Smith got some playing time last year as a freshman. um, I don't necessarily see that as a position battle, but you do wonder because Jalen Jones says he's not – Says he's not hindered by anything. It's probably just a day three a camp type of thing, but you do wonder if they might try to switch some on the other side or try to formulate some depth elsewhere. I don't really know. I just found that as an interesting note that I left out.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, I think it's more of a positive than anything that they that, that Keedron Smith is ready to play in, in that capacity. Um, Jalen Jones is a good football player, and look, I know he's coming off the knee injury, but he would have been a really good football player for Ole Miss last year. Had he stayed healthy throughout the year, so I think that's Speaks more to Kedron Smith than it says about Jalen Jones.
0: Yeah, I would. Uh, I would agree with that too. And it's like on one side, uh, you wonder like. I, they're just. I don't think left right corner really matters very much, and so you just kind of wonder because after Miles Hartsfield starting on the other defensive backside, it's a redshirt freshman in Jacory Hawkins and a true freshman in Jalen Jordan listed on the depth chart, and so you would like. to – I mean, I would imagine if you can have three guys that you feel pretty good starting with, that's better because after that it really drops off. You got Jamar Richardson, a uh, junior, a JUCO transfer who's listed behind Smith. Um, oh. On or, or excuse me, even with Smith and behind Jalen Jones on the original depth chart, Ole Miss release, But my point being is that Hartsfield, J- Jones, and Smith are the only ones with real game experience, and so you've You would want to get as many guys ready to play there as possible. Because, like I said, left corner, right corner is kind of just a mere formality. It's not completely the same thing, but it doesn't really matter a ton.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like right tackle and left tackle. I mean, to to an extent, it's, it's different, and to an extent, it's not. You need to be able to do to both and. I think both those guys will be able to. I don't. I don't really think that'll be a hindrance for them.
0: Yeah, and then at out, one of those outside linebacker spots, you have Kadir Shepherd and Chuck Wiley listed as 1-2 and two on the depth chart with Shepard being the starter. Not that I'm thinking Shepard's going to lose his starting job, but Chuck Wiley kind of had some spurts last year where he played pretty good football. Obviously, you want to be too deep on the defensive line you can play, but that might be something to monitor, which one of them kind of separates themselves. Really, other than that, most of it's on the offensive side of the ball, and I feel like we've talked the offensive line thing to death. but you've got two true freshmen with running with the second team at tackles. Like, Where does that depth come from? Because I think Matt Luke thinks it's going to have to become – with those two freshmen particularly uh, tackle with you know guys that didn't have spring and have come in in summer and the biggest thing is getting them physically ready to play and i'm just not sure how much you can accomplish with that in 5 weeks or whatever they have from the that start till the first game um so really if you're talking about trying to formulate depth it is 100% on the offensive line because they don't have any
1: <laughs> yeah i mean if, if you ask Matt Luke right now hey where where can some uh, unexpected depth Depths come in and he gets to pick for the
0: position. It's offensive line, right? Yeah, 100%. And he noted yesterday, and we may have talked about this on Monday show. Forgive me if we did. I don't remember. Matt Luke, I mean, openly admitted he said, I've spent more time with the offensive line than any other prediction group and probably spent more time there during this stretch of camp than any other time since I've been named head coach and I, or permanent head coach, excuse me. And I think that's. Uh, I think that's definitely not on accident. I think that's probably, if there's one thing that keeps Rich Rodriguez and Matt Luke up and awake at night, it's 100% on the offensive line because I don't think them doing the two tight end thing a bunch is necessarily on accident. I think they're going to use that as a crutch to run the football pretty effectively and kind of help out their offensive line. But, man, you start getting an injury or two deep on this offensive line and things could really go sideways.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, if if there's one position group that has to, Stay healthy, and you guaranteed Matt Lucas, Rich Rodriguez, and hell even Mac, Mike McIntyre. that they stayed healthy, it would be the offensive line because there's just not uh, the bodies that they need there. I feel like that's uh, that's where the scholarships hit the most was uh, on the offensive line. I, I think that that took the brunt of the the, the limitations and. They're going to have to overcome it somehow.
0: It's really just the – I mean, I think more so than anything, it's really just the turnover. You had a lot of veteran guys in the program the last couple of years that had played a decent bit of football and were 7, 8 deep, whatever. I think it's just some of it – some of it may be the restrictions. I'm not necessarily disputing that. But I think a lot of it is just sheer turnover. They're in one of those years where they're having to kind of really restock that because they lost a lot of older guys last year.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, that's – Maybe it's just the turn of the cycle. Ole Miss has always been kind of, you know, hadn't, since 2012, had a pretty decent depth, uh, you know, pretty decent depth on the offensive line. But it just, you know, for whatever reason, the NCAA, the, the cycle of players, whatever reason, there's not many guys that they know going into the year that they're going to count on.
0: Yeah. And so, like, this year goes well for Ole Miss better than expected on the offensive line. I think if Broker, Jeremy James, and Michael Howard are all serviceable, competent offensive linemen. Because that would put them at eight deep with Givens back. But that's yeah. a huge ask because that's two true freshmen who didn't have a spring practice and another kid that's a senior that struggled to keep weight on his entire career. But where yeah. else is it coming from? I mean, I guess there are guys that could come along later than the year, but I mean, they're one of their biggest offensive linemen, and I'm talking about just sheer stature, Darius Thomas, 6'6", 340, interior offensive lineman at guard, has a heart condition and is isn't going to – like? Is it going to really be on the field? And I'm talking about a practice field, it sounds like, until at least September. So you're really – and that's a – you cross out of the seven true freshmen that have come in since the spring. Like, cross that off a list. You take the two that are already rotating to tackle. There's only four guys left to choose from. And I'm not saying that's the only one, the only guys on the roster. Like, there are other guys on the roster, but there's it's it's all in the same in the sense that there's really no experience. I mean, I'm talking – I'm trying to go down this list, but my computer is really – Acting out of whack right now, but you go down this list and you're talking. So, five starters aside. So, what do we got? Five starters, aside, like, what do, aside from what? Who are we talking about here? You're talking about Matthews. You're talking about so Matthews, Givens, Johnson. Um, help me out here. Why am I blinking? Because
1: Matt, Matthews, Givens, jo- oh, we're just going down the oh, give me the five.
0: starting five. Like, goodness, who is it, guard? This is bad five. Uh- this is really bad radio. It's it's Givens, Matthews, Johnson, Brown, and then oh
1: Ben Brown. How do we forget Ben Brown? Yeah, I and don't. Then, I don't. Uh, know. Royce Newman's right back. Right. So take
0: so take out those five. Take yeah. out those five guys. Then you add that you take three of the seven freshmen or Like where else is this coming from? I mean, I, the, no, it's it's
1: not coming from anywhere else. It's, you're going to have to get the freshmen ready to go. Um, it, there's no other option. I mean, they don't get to get redshirted. Um, I'm sure they'd love to, but that's not an option. You've got five guys that that you were going to start right now. and I mean, you got, you know, Royce Newman and, and I guess Alex Givens can go. But, man, going into Memphis, it's going to be scarce. If, if Givens can't go, um, wow, <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to be kind of scarce on that offensive line.
0: Hey, so here we, so here's where I want to go. Here's where I want to go with this. After that, it's Jalen Cunningham, redshirt freshman. Had a little bit, he played a little bit last year. Uh, sure. 6'4, 365. Nice interior guy, not much experience. That's an option. Cunningham, I mean, Cunningham is going to play. He's, he's, yeah, he's, he's a four star kid. Second on the two deep. Yeah, I mean, he's going to play. But then, obviously, we said Michael Howard. So that's, uh, so then it's Casey Swaim. I don't, I don't even know if I'm saying no, that right. No disrespect. Caleb Warren. Uh, that's one of the kid that falls in the true freshman. Louisville, Mississippi, Nanawaia kid.
1: Nanawaia High School.
0: Um, Reese McIntyre, I guess, is an option, but that's another true freshman kid. He, Samuel Plash, you know, wasn't even on scholarship when he got here. He was technically, listed as the second team center. It's Broker, Peyton Cox, Chandler Tuit is going to have to play another high school kid. Carter Colquitt, like you're running out of options, is my point. Bryce Ramsey is another guy I would look at a, a coast kid. That's another true freshman. That's an option. Like there's a, really a world where yeah. three or four of these true freshmen out of the seven end up playing if you really yeah, they, get deep into injuries. I mean, it's Hamilton Hall, and that's it.
1: Yeah, they really like Ramsey, I think. Um, yeah, but, man, it, look, there's going to be some times this year where Ole Miss just gets beat up front consistently, and there's not going to be much they can do about it uh, just because they're going to be playing some guys that are inexperienced. Because, look, your injuries are going to happen. This is football. Uh SEC football. You're not going to roll the same five out there every game. So <laughs> it's going to. And what's funny is, you know, everybody's like, "Oh, they got to stay healthy." They do got to stay healthy. I understand that. But
0: even if you stay healthy, you got to play seven, eight guys.
1: Yeah, exactly. And somebody's not going to play well one day. Like, like Givens might have a bad day. It is possible that happens. Um, you know, it, it is possible he just has a bad day one day and, and gets his tail kicked. And you know, it, it's a you don't ever notice these offensive linemen unless they're having a bad day, and sometimes they have bad days.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting uh, probably the the most interesting part about this to me is like yeah, if these guys end up competent or they end up staying really healthy and get fortunate, it might be moot. But how does old Miss how does old Miss not Is compensate the right word? How does Ole Miss aid in this? Because we've talked about the two tight end thing. Rich Rod's going to get the ball out of Matt Corral's hands quickly. They're going to move the pocket. They've already done some very short kind of, not unorthodox, but interesting rollout stuff that you wouldn't have seen last year at all and will be certainly a new sight to Ole Miss fans' eyes. They're going to shift the pocket. They're going to get guys rolling out. They're going to get the ball out of his hands quickly. they got personnel to do that in terms of kind of speedier slot receivers, whether it's Knight, whether it is Elijah Moore, but at a certain point, if Ole Miss starts to struggle there and the injuries start to pile up up front, just how much can you disguise it before it just is what it is?
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't you don't really disguise an offensive line that's not sustainable. Um, I mean, if you if you can't block, you're not going to win a football games. It's really that simple. Um, if you don't protect your true freshman quarterback, you're not going to win football games. and Your true freshman quarterback might not finish the season. So it that that's what going to be fascinating for me in this Memphis game because if you go into Memphis and you can't block Memphis, buddy, you're in trouble. Um, but if you go into Memphis and you're able to run the football with consistency and you're able to move the football and give Corral time and let him go through reads and progressions, uh, maybe that's a sign of, you know, that this offensive line is farther along than they thought.
0: Yeah, so I almost feel like we talked that into the ground and we're going to talk about it a lot more heading into the, heading into the season, that is for sure. But for right now, it's really kind of a light day in terms of Ole Miss football notes. We'll be back at practice um, tomorrow. We'll have that kind of for some Friday stuff as far as mailbag Friday. We'll get into some football stuff as well. Um, For now, let's get to that uh, interview with Lee. um, I was about to say Lee Sterling, who's our gambling guy on the radio show. Excuse me, um, Lee Steinberg. Um, I think you'll really find this interesting. He talks a lot about how the sports industry has changed. Um, He kind of waited on the Zeke. Uh, melvin gordon holdouts and his philosophy on that um so uh without further ado lee steinberg who is undoubtedly the most famous guy we've ever had on this podcast so please watch please listen in awe all right and we now welcome on a really really interesting guest a um his name is lee steinberg you probably know him um Obviously, he probably gets this every day, but movie Jerry Maguire, he's a uh, super agent that was really a pioneer in the, in the sports industry, and I, I've really been looking forward to this, and I'd, I'd have, be remiss if I didn't think, thank my good friend Michael Portner, in addition to Lee, for helping me set this up. Lee, how are you?
2: I'm doing great.
0: So, I, I, I guess we'll get getting started. Your story is really interesting to me because of out of everything you've accomplished, the, the start of it was interesting to me. So... Going back to where you were at Cal, tell me about your first client and kind of how that came to be. Because I remember Michael telling me a little bit about that. And that first draft was a really interesting story. How did that come about?
2: So I was going to Cal Berkeley and I was at law school and I was a dorm counselor in an undergrad dorm and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students uh, who was a quarterback on the team, was Steve Bartkowski, and in 1975, he became the very first pick in the first round of the NFL draft with the Atlanta Falcons, and he asked me to represent him. So there I was, brimming with legal experience, never having <laughs> practiced before, and I had the first pick uh, in the draft. And uh, we had a world football league competing against the nfl and enabled us to get the largest rookie contract in nfl history and i remember going to atlanta to sign the contract the night before and there were klieg lights flashing in the sky there was a huge crowd pressed up against the police line at the airport and the first thing we heard was we interrupt the late news to bring you a special news Bulletin, Steve Bartkowski and his attorney Lee Steinberg have just arrived at the Atlanta airport. We switch you live for an in depth interview. And I was stunned. I'd grown up in laid back California, and I realized at that point that athletes were the celebrities. They were the venerated uh, uh, people of focus in communities. And that if they would retrace their roots and go back to the high school collegiate and professional level and at the high school level set up a scholarship fund or a boys and girls club work with or a church and at the collegiate level go back and endow a full scholarship as players like uh, Troy Aikman or Edron James or Steve Young did, and then at the pro level put together a charitable foundation uh, that had the leading political business and community leaders on it and then execute a program that they could really make a profound difference in the world and uh, set themselves up for uh, being able to target uh, things. So work done, just put the 175th single mother and her family into the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and moving them in. And Patrick Mahomes just put together 15 in the Mahomes, which uh, focuses on youth charities. Uh, so these are athletes making a difference. So that was the genesis of the practice, and that's been the philosophy that has uh, governed it.
0: Going back to to 1975, you, you mentioned you're, you're fresh out; you don't have much experience, and. And Steve asked you to represent him. Or at, at, at what point, obviously it's a, it's an incredible opportunity, but at, at that point, had you even known you wanted to kind of dive fully into sports agency? Just, I guess, what was your initial reaction when, when he asked that?
2: I thought it would be exciting. Uh, I love sports, but as for a career, there really wasn't a well-settled field of sports agency. Uh Teams could hang up the phone and say we don't deal with agents. So it was somewhat rudimentary compared to how it is now. So, uh, and there was nothing to aspire to because there wasn't a well settled field. So we just sort of had to make it up as 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 it went along. And um, uh, but I could. My dad had raised me with two core values. One was to treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful uh, difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So I saw that in working with the athletes, I would have the ability to do that.
0: I know, it, it, like, as you mentioned, it's it's a much different world now in terms of sports agency. And I would, I, I would think most would say you played a, a tremendous part in that. But at 25, 26 years old, was, was I don't want to say you were overwhelmed, but was it was it kind of a whirlwind at that age to be working, I guess, with athletes and organizations on that level? Because obviously the NFL has gotten bigger since, but it was still the most popular sport in America at that point. Was it, was it a little bit of a whirlwind for you?
2: I had been student body president at Berkeley in the tumultuous 60s, and it was the concentric uh, uh, vortex of the student universe And there were all sorts of uh, Demonstrations going on I learned everything I needed to learn about Negotiating by dealing with uh, Ronald Reagan who was the governor And then later president And so we were In the center of uh, The nightly news Would start from Berkeley, California uh, Many Other uh, uh, so i had been in that heated up press environment with uh with the uh, pressure and and the rest of it so uh i probably didn't know enough to be odd
0: how did things from that point on you you get the contract done and that's obviously your your first first big client how did life change for you after that? Like, it, Was there ever a point where things started coming easier in terms of you, you know, acquiring talent easier and, and I guess your name getting out there as well? At what point did you kind of realize you had made it?
2: So um, the second year I went out and talked to a whole slew of athletes and had some success, signed a number of them, but I realized very quickly that if I was talking to the great mass of athletes, that I might have a real hit and miss chance of actually signing them. But if I could profile athletes and understand what their background and values had been and make sure they matched with uh, mine and make sure I was getting very bright, uh, young men, hopefully from good families, um, that at that point, um, I'd have a really higher success rate. And we'd we bond much better. So listening is the skill that really is critical in this field. It's being able to create enough trust in another male human being that they will peel back the layers of the onion and reveal their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest hopes and dreams so that you can emotionally bond at a deep level. The other thing I realized was that football was a quarterback-centric game. And that those players had exponentially more name recognition, ability to be a role model, ability to do endorsements, longer careers. So I started to aggregate uh, quarterbacks from Warren Moon to uh, Neil Lomax to to Eric Hipple to Scott Bruner. And then in 83, I had two first-rounders, Tony Easton and Ken O'Brien. Um, But in 1984, I was able to do, to bring Warren Moon back from Canada, and there were a number of different people bidding on him. He was the first real free agent in football. And um, uh, there was a big bidding war, and we toured the country, and he ended up getting the largest contract ever for an NFL player. And about a week or two after that, Steve Young was uh, fought over by two leagues, the NFL and the fledgling USFL, and he signed the biggest contract in the history of sports. So at that point, um, I had a very solid football uh, practice and then expanded into baseball and uh, basketball and boxers like Lennox Lewis or Oscar De La Loya and uh, Olympic stars. Um, but in football, we ended up with 62 first-round draft picks and the very first pick in the draft in eight different years.
0: It sounds like from a couple mentions of it, you mentioned the Steve Young contract. I was about That was kind of my next question as far as the USFL. I, I imagine as an agent, an actual real competitor like we really haven't seen since to the NFL – had to have been a pretty welcoming sight for for you and guys like you because you can kind of leverage the two leagues. It sounds like you did a little bit. What was that time like? Because it's I don't think we've really seen that since.
2: We haven't. Um, the USFL probably would have made it a league uh, if they hadn't switched to the fall because they had a TV contract. And in '83, they went ahead and signed Herschel Walker and Jim Kelly. Uh, future Hall of Famers. And then the next year they signed uh, Mike Rogier, who was the Heisman Trophy winner, and Reggie White, Steve Young. I mean, they picked the draft basically clean. So you had two very competitive uh, leagues. And at that point, when players signed their contract at the end of it, um, uh, at the very end of it, a team had the option right to force the player to continually play for them as long as they gave them a 10% race. So there was no free agency. There was no opportunity. There was one draft with one team. And when the USFL came along, it was like a godsend. Um, and we haven't seen that type of uh, competitor since. Um, I was hoping that the AAF would do well because it would give players who were just a slot below NFL level the chance to actually get out on the field and play, but uh, it didn't work, and uh, now we have an XFL coming along. But the difference was that the USFL paid... uh, hyper-competitive numbers and could actually, on individual uh, players, beat the NFL.
0: As you rose up throughout and the industry kind of started to become more like what it is now, did you ever, I imagine, I just I sit here and try to put myself in your shoes, I, I can't imagine that, you know, in 1975, you know, fresh out of Cal Berkeley, you, you could have imagined maybe the, the Hollywood influence and everything that's come with your career, Did you ever like? I I read a Sports Illustrated story uh, about you, and it it said at one point you were sitting at the '96 Super Bowl, where both quarterbacks and I believe both backups were your clients, and you're sitting with Cuba Gooding Jr. as he's doing research for obviously the Jerry Maguire movie. Was there ever a moment like I guess in time where, where you would kind of just like did you ever soak it all in and realize just how big it everything had become?
2: I never really did. I kept focused on what the next thing was and the next thing. So people say that stopping to smell the roses is uh, probably an element of happiness, but I just kept going. And so I never really sat back and reflected on uh, much other than what the next client was and what the next adventure was. Um, but what was happening is that I realized that to help the sport really make an impact um, then I needed to go to owners and say look we're doing this wrong we shouldn't be having public negotiations that make a player look greedy and make the owner look obstinate and push fans away because they can't relate to the money anyway and we shouldn't have collective bargaining agreement that pits uh, millionaires against billionaires because again you're pushing the brand away and what I said was look our competition in the NFL is not labor versus management it's competition with the uh, NBA and Major League Baseball and Walt Disney World and HBO and every other form of discretionary entertainment spending so really we ought to be focusing on growing the pie and at that point TV had just added a fourth network, which was Fox, so the question was, could we blow out the TV contract? could we do stadia that were had all sorts of ancillary revenue sources, naming rights and luxury boxes and premier seating? could we use the internet in interesting ways? So the point was to build a brand and in nineteen seventy five when I started each team as their share of the national television contract in the NFL got two million dollars. Well, today they get two hundred million dollars. And so the explosion from three networks and an independent or two to to hundreds of competing stations put sports rights at a premium. It also meant more highlight shows, more interview shows, more feature shows. So exponentially more sports uh in all those ways, and that reflected on franchise value where the two teams in 1976, Tampa Bay and Seattle, were had a purchase price of $16.5 million. Um, and today, the Dallas Cowboys were $5 billion. And it, uh, we saw the building a new stadium, the whole world changed.
0: A number of the things that I've read of of what you said and things about you is one of the things that really struck me was at some point there was a shift in front offices from GMs being former players who have kind of grown up on the football side of things and either played or coached or whatever the case may be to more guys with, you know, economics and law degrees. As at what point did you start to notice that shift and did that make negotiating more difficult because it seems like you're going from a dealing with a group of guys that kind of had the football instincts and the football backgrounds, to very real business and negotiating skills. So
2: primarily the front offices were composed of people I would call old guard uh, for the first 15, 20 years when I started. And these were people who had played the game, uh, coached, scouted, and, and then became executives. And they were absolutely astonished and revolted by the size of the money as it developed because it was so different than what they had played for or what they had coached for. Um, and uh, so they really cared about players, but they had a hard time processing the new economics. They started to be replaced by... Uh, executives who had gone to business school or law school, who had training specifically in uh, economics in some way, and they understood that the cost of players was just the cost of doing business. They were just much more efficient in how to not <laughs> how to negotiate and and not uh, and not pay. So they're not quite as emotionally attached to players, but they do have highly honed negotiating skills and today with salary caps in basketball and, and football an understanding of how to use that cap and how to be creative in terms of putting more players on the roster at the same cap level uh, became a real skill caponomics and so it's it's been a, a, a major change so when you're uh, dealing with the Rams, you're dealing with Kevin Demoff, you know, who went to business school. And the same thing would be true in a whole lot of other places.
0: One of the things that I think a, a lot of people find compelling about you and, and your story is not only is it a, really a tale of incredible success, but in its own way, it's also a, a comeback story. And I, I just wonder in the last decade, or I should say maybe five, six years, when you've kind of made your comeback, I know paxton lynch was very instrumental in that as a guy who was so big in the industry for so long and still is when you were out for a little while did you ever have any doubts about your ability to kind of get your footing back in and, and come back like you have because i imagine it's easier to look back now that you have kind of made it and come back with did you ever have any doubts
2: so i struggled with alcohol in uh, uh in the early 2000s and eventually gave my practice away to younger uh, agents and said two things i'm gonna be sober and i'm gonna be a good father and so i'm now in my 10th year of continuous sobriety Um, my comeback was being able to maintain sobriety and being a good uh, father to my kids Um, being successful in the world was nothing that that I really worried about but i i knew that there would be questions uh when i came back uh could you guarantee someone you'd stay sober not really um you know were you still relevant well there were the same most of the same people were executives and all the rest of it. but you knew there would be questions um the pax and linds signing was really uh, good because it was what I had done for years um, which is to have a quarterback in the first round Um, and we've had a whole series of of players Aaron Jones, the running back starts for the Green Bay Packers and as Jamal Williams backs him up we've got Jam Brown who's a Pro Bowl type uh, linebacker and on and on but the point is that I knew that there was going to be a whole younger generation that I had to rebond with because for millennials, history started today. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that I had uh, not been uh, active in it for six or seven years, I knew I'd have to reintroduce myself. And that came, uh, I did a, a best-selling book, The Agent, and that took me across the country on a book tour and I went to 83 campuses. Uh, and spoke. So I had the ability to reintroduce uh, myself and also to understand the nature of social media and the fact that people largely communicate today over uh, their phone and computer and uh, set up some really vibrant uh, websites and in that way uh, was able to reconnect.
0: One of the things when we spoke a couple weeks ago that that really stuck with me was... I I think I had asked you about your pitch and maybe what it is and how it changed. And you mentioned a lot of it is the way you guys have always set up players for life after football. And in some ways, from the little I know about the industry, that sounds unique in a lot of ways. Because in a world of, you know, the 30 for 30 documentary broke or whatever, where they profile athletes running out of money, you guys have made a very conscious effort to that being almost half the battle if not more is the second stage of their career which is the life after football did that help resonate with the kind of younger modern crowd did you have that kind of really just endless supply of history of look how many guys we've set up for for not just this career but everything after well it
2: resonates with the parents in some senses more than it does because when you're 21 the thought of second careers an abstraction but the truth of the matter was that we try to teach players networking skills so they go into a banquet and instead of standing against the wall they walk up to people they collect cards, they reach out they do the charitable and community uh, programs and so you take a player like Duron Cherry who was a, a Pro Bowl safety for the Kansas City Chiefs he had the Cherry Foundation well because of the networking he did, he was able to buy the Anheuser-Busch distributorship in Kansas City, which is a license to print money. And we introduced him to Wayne Weaver, who was just buying the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he allowed uh, drawn to purchase a small amount of the team. So you actually had a player as owner. Warwick Dunn did the same thing with... Uh, uh, the Atlanta Falcons and owns a piece there, Ray Childress, the same thing. So whether it was business, if players were on the 49ers and they're training in Santa Clara, we would say to them, well, can you think of any industries in uh, that area that might be interesting to to bond and network with? Well, just high tech and the huge venture capital community, so the tight end Brent Jones ended up putting together a three billion dollar hedge fund, and Steve Young has bought and sold a variety of different companies. And that become is because they understood where they were and who their fans were, and reached out when it's broadcast. It could be Desmond Howard on uh, ESPN Game Day or you know, Troy Aikman on Fox or Steve Young on ESPN, but we used the off-seasons to already be thinking about what the most uh, powerful way was to leverage their profile into real relationships that would help.
0: One of the last things I have for you is this, I noticed you earlier you mentioned something about how you kind of went to the owners and some of the GMs and, and mentioned that negotiating publicly is never really a good strategy for either side. And now you kind of look at the, I would say the two hottest ones probably going on now are Zeke Elliott's holdout and probably Melvin Gordon, maybe I'm missing one or two others. It's quite obvious from talking to you that you've throughout your career tried to avoid that. Have you ever found yourself in a public negotiating situation at any point in your career? And do you think that benefits one side or is it a detriment to everyone?
2: So early on, um, there was a time when I had a player out of training camp. And it was with this st louis football cardinals and they were noted for being penurious so i made the argument really strongly that uh, if the owner was actually taking the differential between what the player ought to be paid and what he was actually offering him and gave it to charity or something that'd be one thing but you know he was just holding on to it uh for uh, and creating higher ticket prices and so i won that public battle i made that owner look very bad but you know what the only person who could agree to a contract for my player was the owner and when you take men who were billionaires um it uh, is not a great idea to put them up against the wall it's not like jerry jones is now taking a sack lunch to work and riding (laughs) the bus to work because ezekiel (laughs) elliott's not there right um they will go on so the better way to do it is privately oh so what happened with the with the cardinals was the owner did give the differential to charity (laughs) and there you were so it taught me never to put uh powerful men up against the wall publicly. Now privately behind the scenes what you can do is do a negotiation where it becomes the team's idea and the team goes ahead and extends the player so the team could go ahead and extend Ezekiel Elliott because it was in the best interest of Dallas Cowboys not because he put him up against the wall. Moreover in the two cases you mentioned they're both running backs. And I guarantee you that no team wants its starting running back to be exposed in training camp or preseason games to injury. So uh, if they were in camp, there wouldn't be a whole lot they were doing anyway. So the leverage that you would think is just not there, and the rules are stacked against the players so at a certain point if they don't show up and they're on contract they lose a year towards free agency at another point um, all sorts of draconian things happen to them so inside negotiations when you're trying to do it collaboratively with the team are much preferable to staking a public position and uh, what happens in conflict is that when People feel the other side's in bad faith. They can lock in, and young men can grow old. You know, summer can turn to fall, and no one will give in. So I'm sure that right before the first preseason, right before the first regular season game, those situations will somehow be settled.
0: The uh, last thing I have for you, I I I read, I I don't remember where I found this story, but. You were negotiating a Jim Harbaugh contract and walked in with a water gun. Is that true? What was the background behind that?
2: Well, it, given the tragedies that have happened now, you would never do that at that point. But we had been talking with them about Chicago and and uh, uh, joking with the GM about the Al Capone days. And, you know, if we didn't settle, was it going to be the Valentine's Say Valentine's Day <laughs> a massacre and all that, and again, it's—I want to be real careful here. But right. The, the country's just experienced some uh, extremely uh, horrific events. But anyway, so without telling him, Ted Phillips, who was negotiating for the Bears at that point, um, we just drove up to camp because I knew that. Mike Ditka was the coach, and his tolerance for a holdout was going to be about a day or two before he went ballistic. So we just drove up to training camp, and we had these two toy water guns, and uh, we sprayed the uh, jam with it, and fortunately had a good sense of humor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's pretty good. Well, Lee, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I I really appreciate this. This has been Fantastic, and, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. And it was it was a pleasure to meet you a couple weeks ago.
2: My pleasure. Uh, good luck to you and your podcast.
0: And that was Lee Steinberg. Uh, I hope that interview lived up to the billing. I know in the term, middle of fall camp and people starving for college football, and obviously if you're listening to this podcast, probably all Miss football. I know that was a little different, but I don't know. I wasn't not going to have Lee Steinberg on our podcast if he was willing Absolutely. and offered. Uh, so that's really kind of where I was going to go with that. I thought he said some really interesting stuff in there. Uh, he's, you can tell he's a very smart guy. Um, and as he mentioned in the beginning – his start was uh, very interesting in the uh, sports industry. So he was at Cal Berkeley um, and basically just made buddies with. Hold on. I'm making sure I have this guy's name right. Excuse me, I'm not a football historian. Um, this is bad. Oh, Steve Bartkowski. So, who was the number one overall pick in the 1975 NFL draft? Lee Steinberg is fresh out of law school at Cal University, and Steve Barkowski was just like, "Hey, man, you want to be my agent?" So, 25 years old or 24 years old, Lee Steinberg shows up to the NFL draft, which I believe was in—I uh, don't know where it was—but he shows up basically to negotiate at 25 years old, and his first ever client is the number one pick in the NFL draft.
1: I mean, that's that's a decent starting.
0: Yeah, and that also shows you how different the industry was back then. Because like he was, as, as you, you'll hear in the, as you heard in the interview, excuse me, he was just like, look, like this was very different world back then. Like when he offered, I was flattered and thrilled, and I thought it might be fun, but there really wasn't a ton of a future in this. You know, teams often declined to speak, like declined to speak to agents, and wanted to negotiate with players themselves. Like nowadays, that's just absolutely preposterous. <laughs>
1: That's crazy how much the industry has changed since, since that day.
0: And he kind of made got, it what it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, you got agents trying to get in, like you know, before these guys even get out of college.
0: I know it's uh, and it's uh, and now it's it, it, one of the things he hit on, and we talked to I talked to Lee about this the first time I spoke with him. Is it's talking to the parents, you know, more so than the kids. Because if you can make the parents feel good about, and Lee's pitch is very much heavily, look, this is two parts, we're going to negotiate and get you as much money as you can while you're playing career, but over half of this job is setting your kid up, or I guess if he's pitching the kid himself, setting you up for life after football. And that's the thing that his agency has really always prided themselves on, is the amount of money his clients have made after football. They're not a lot of his clients, maybe none, I, I didn't actually ask, I probably should have asked that. You know, really kind of squandered their money or gone broke. They've set them up very stably financially and they make sure they have a niche or something to do or something they're interested in. After football which I found is interesting because you see so many guys when they hang up their career, a lot of them go broke for various different reasons but a lot of it is because they just don't have anything to do like their sports and football or whatever their sport is has been their entire life and then they're just kind of lost. These guys have kind of made a conservative effort to make sure they have something to go on. Like when they're retiring you're going to do something.
1: Look, neither one of us will probably ever make uh, millions of dollars a year, but, man, going broke with that much money is crazy to me. It's just wild. Uh, goodness. <laughs> like, like, just the, the, the money that you would have to spend to lose it all is just insane to me.
0: Yeah, and so one of the things that I you heard me ask you about this in the interview, just to put this in perspective for a second, at 1996, he's at the height of what he is. Lee right. is is the guy. He is sitting at the Super Bowl. Between the Steelers and the Cowboys, where Troy Aikman, the starting quarterback for the Steeler excuse me for the Cowboys, um, is a Steinberg client. Um, Dan O'Neill, I don't don't quote me on that. Whoever the quarterback for the Steelers was um, was a Steinberg client and. His, the second and third string quarterback for the Cowboys were Steinberg clients, and the backup <laughs> quarterback for the Steelers were the Steinberg client, and he's watching the game alongside Cuba Gooding Jr. as Gooding Jr. is doing research for the movie Jerry Maguire. Probably a pretty good day.
1: That's
0: the right. That's the yeah, and I, that's why, I mean, as you heard, I prefaced the question, I was like, look, like... I'm describing this day to you, and it may not be this specific day, but was there ever a point you kind of looked around and soaked this all in and was like, holy shit, I've made it? And he was like, you know, no. um, You know, he said, when you soak it all in and kind of bask in it, that's probably, you know, an easy way to be happy, but I always just kind of kept my foot on the gas. And I don't know if he regrets not soaking it all in at the time, but, you know, it sounded like maybe he, he, the way he answered the question made it, Neil O'Donnell, excuse me, was the Steelers quarterback name. Um, But the way he made it sound like was maybe I should have taken it all in because then shortly after that, um, He kind of did crash and burn and then has really made a comeback since. And it's been interesting because he kind of got his life together as far as being a better father. You know, he sought treatment for, for his alcohol struggles and has really kind of made it back. And now he's he represents about eight clients now, which at one time he represented about 90. But, man, when you crash and burn that hard and like sure, you have yeah. that steep of a fall, being able to make it back, period, is fairly remarkable.
1: And he's going to sign the richest contract in the NFL here in about two years.
0: Yes, he is, if not sooner. Um, and one of the things I found interesting about it, and I asked him one, as you heard, I asked him one of the questions is at some point in his career, the way he deals with teams started changing because you went from having GMs that were ex football guys, guys that were former players, came up through the playing system, coaching whatever, and played to guys with economics degrees from you know and law degrees from Harvard and Yale to where you're digging at one time you're negotiating with football guys who are football smart probably stronger on the scouting side but don't necessarily have the stronger negotiating tactics to dealing with guys who are very much like very strong business skills which i found interesting
1: oh yeah i mean that the the way things are done uh from now and, and i mean even 10 years ago is completely different from a, i mean so much you know analytics are involved in and in, in all sorts of sports, uh, you know, from basketball to football to baseball and, and how those guys uh, give out contracts. I mean, it's it's pretty much, uh, with a few exceptions, is based on all, you know, numbers and, and, and data. So, I mean, yeah, that, that is interesting how, you know, contracts and negotiations have changed on that front over the past 10 to 15 years.
0: Yeah, and he said, uh, obviously, as you heard, he took a much different approach a lot of times as he got into it and he kind of started signing clients. And then he went really would go to owners and GMs and be like, look, Like, we're doing this all wrong. Like, he basically presented on two fronts. It was like, look, like, instead of us trying to fight each other, we all need to be trying to grow the pie in the sky because there's so much money to be made here in the NFL period. And what we're going to do negotiating, let's negotiate behind the scenes and work towards a deal that we can get done without this because when it spills out publicly, it really doesn't end well for the player. I mean, all all the times it ends up worse for one side than the other, but really when you have a public negotiation spill out, as you heard him talk about with Nelvin Gordon, or particularly Zeke Elliott, it doesn't really benefit either side. No,
1: I mean... I mean, people will take sides in that stuff, and it, you know, I mean, there's nobody right and there's nobody wrong. I don't, I don't guess in, in that situation. It, it, I mean, I'm fascinated by how those two play out because I think those two have got, got a chance to be interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would certainly agree with that. And you know, he he didn't really know how it would turn out, but he was basically like, I talked I talked to him about it beforehand when one of the first times I met him, he's like, yeah, like players don't have a ton of leverage but at the same time there's not a single team on earth that doesn't want their starting running back out there for week one but at the same time the players really not going to play and not take a game check because the way the nfl structure is zeke Elliott hasn't received any sort of check from the dallas cowboys since last january or whatever like his next game check. oh really yeah i mean dude they don't get game like they they get paid by the game they get game checks in the nfl
1: wow I i didn't realize that was like all their money
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, maybe they, I mean, some of the obviously more complex contracts, you maybe get some incentives, some bonuses, and stuff like that. But no, dude, you're running the mill contract. You're getting your game check, and then your next game check's when you play your next game.
1: <laughs> wow. So I, I assume, like, these guys that get put on, like, injured reserve and, and physically unable to perform less, like, they still get their game checks, right? Uh,
0: yeah, I would assume stuff like that. And I don't know the ins and outs like that. But the point being is, you're not getting the same monthly payments in the offseason if you're an NFL player than you are in season.
1: So, yeah, you're. it's really, really hard to skip a game unless you're Le'Veon Bell.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know. That was a little something different. We won't always do stuff like that. But, like I said, dude offered to come on the podcast, and I wasn't going to say no. I think he had some interesting insight. We um,
1: 18 days till there's a college football game.
0: That is. We are close. What else is going on? Oh, so I made the mistake of perusing Twitter for an hour last night before oh, I went to bed. Um, So there's the the new internet trend that's going to die in the next 36 hours because people are going to make 25,000 different unoriginal variations of the same joke involved some kind of pig. What is the pig? What is this? Or hog? Oh, have you not seen it? I don't know what this is. It it was very confusing.
1: Okay, so somebody, like, I'm not getting political here, but somebody tweeted at Jason Isbell. You know I'm talking about the country music singer.
0: Yeah, if Uh, you don't like him, you get your sports writer card revoked.
1: Yeah. So he basically just said, "I don't understand why assault weapons or assault rifles, whatever, are not banned." That's basically what he said. Um, and somebody tweeted at him, "What am I supposed to do when twenty-five to fifty feral hogs come into my yard and attack my kids? How can I defend myself without one?" And the internet just took off on that tweet.
0: You're telling me what asshole started a trend?
1: <laughs> I mean, it, they're not making fun; of, like they're not to be fair it's like just people uh you know making jokes it's not a political joke or right. it's just people making jokes like
0: like what is that, a excuse me for being city slicker here but what is the difference between a normal hog and a feral hog uh
1: yeah i mean we're both city slickers On I, I guess one i guess one's wild like there's one just running out in the wild like I mean, like yeah, feral that's cow-
0: exactly what that means. Feral, I, mean, the, I just googled the definition of feral, and it means wild state, especially after an escape from captivity or domestication. Yeah. Uh,
1: I did see. So, like, did you play? You played NCAA growing up, right? I did. So, like, you know how they did the mascot game? Yeah, like somebody uh, played, you know, Arkansas versus Arkansas, and it's like, guys, I found twenty-five to fifty feral hogs. I thought that was kind of funny.
0: Um. Well, did anybody give this man an answer? <laughs>
1: I don't believe so. I think that I think they just made fun of it.
0: Look, I'm not getting political. I'm not doing, I'm not giving my stance on guns, but in a weird way, if this actually happens wherever this guy lives, how do you combat 35 to 50 hawks at once? You can't do that with a shotgun. No, you can't.
1: You do need a rifle now. Do I believe that 35 to 50 feral hogs uh, attack his, his land and his children? Yeah, I kind of don't.
0: Okay, so maybe maybe in a, the next, if gun reform ever happens, and again, I'm not going down the puddle grove with this, maybe there could be a clause that if you ever have 30 to 50 pigs in your yard at the same time trying to kill you, you should be allowed to have one of those. Is that fair? Can we all agree on that? <laughs> I mean, I mean okay. okay. If you have 50 hogs at once trying to kill you at any given point on your property, <laughs> you should be allowed to have whatever gun you want, bazooka, whatever, it doesn't matter.
1: Just so, I mean, there should be like a pig cloth.
0: Yeah, but you got to have proof. Like maybe pictures of the pigs or maybe, I don't know, human sacrifice where you let one guy take a bullet or whatever. Or not a bullet. That's probably a bad phrasing. Let one guy get attacked and then be like, see, this is why I need this. I don't know. I'm just saying that guy's guy's got a point. Rippy for Senate. Yeah. There will be no pig attacking uh, on my watch. Anyway... That's about all I got. We've gone a long time. Um, we have anything else?
1: Mm, no, no, no. It's uh, it's election night in Mississippi. Everybody's going to get their tweets off tonight. Do you need to stay off Twitter? Oh,
0: I actually kind of eat that stuff up. I'm not big into like the most like internet jokes because I don't understand half of them. But pissed off people about politics, I kind of it's like a <laughs> it's like the shitty reality TV show I can't stop watching. You know, like it's it's interesting.
1: There's only one result that, like, would I think would piss off most Mississippians tonight.
0: What is that? Apocalypse?
1: No, I mean I was talking about election results.
0: Ah, um, yeah. So we have coverage at supertalk.fm. FM. Uh, it will have already happened by the time this podcast drops. But you know, plug. <laughs> some, plug. Be
1: some stories up.
0: Yeah. So we'll be back at it on Friday. It'll be mailbag Friday. The People's Holiday is back. Email me your questions. Tweet us your questions. Uh, if you have my number, text your Wait, questions.
1: We we didn't we you told the people we were going to do a conspiracy theory today and then we didn't.
0: How about we morph it into one? Because I actually got a submission uh, from somebody earlier today, but didn't have enough time to do research on it because I was interviewing movie stars. Uh, and you weren't voting, and not voting, and not voting. Um, Travis Haynes said, "Do the Michael Jordan conspiracy theory." So we All have right, it set God, in God, stone God. on Friday. Deal.
1: Yeah, that that I'm in because that one's real. Really the The gambling one, yeah. yeah so
0: you know, right. I'm not going to form an opinion or a stance until um,
1: I formed mine like 10 years ago. But you, you go ahead and do your research.
0: All right. So we'll be back at it on Friday. Send me your questions, like and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, tell us what you like, don't like about the podcast uh, via email, tweet, whatever form you can. Um, and then, if you really just want to tell us where you're listening from, I know where you're listening from because I have the eye in the sky, Big Brother, also known as SoundCloud, telling That's you the bird. Uh, where you listen. But I would like to. Uh, I would like to know where maybe where you're listening from. Whether it's a beach, I don't know. Does Porta the, John. It doesn't really matter. Just does the guy
1: in Germany still
0: listen? Uh, I don't know. We've had some functioning. We've had a couple of Russians. We've had Lithuania. Um, I don't know if there's a real people or no. bots. But if you're out that's, there in another, the if you ever listen from another country, uh, holler at me for real. We'll get you like a shirt or something. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and not. I mean, like consistently listen. You can't be like over there on vacation. Although if you're listening to us on vacation in a foreign country, you might you get them a T-shirt,
0: too. If you're listening from any zany spot you don't normally live in, tweet us at, text us at, whatever, email me, whatever. I want to hear from it because I think that would be kind of cool. Um, anyway, like and subscribe. We appreciate you listening. We're knee-deep in this fall camp thing. We'll be back with a chock-full football show on Friday, on top of Mailbag Friday. Uh, unless you got anything else, I'm going to get some food. Yep, sounds good. All right, the People's Podcast will be back on Friday. Thank you for listening. Continue to like and subscribe. And it will be Mailbag Friday the next time you're listening to this. So thank you.
2: A Super Talk Mississippi media production.